Well, good morning. This is, uh, to me, one of the most extraordinary passages in an already extraordinary book of the Bible. And uh, before we continue to look at it further, would you please uh, join with me in asking God for help? Um, Lord, that you would choose to make yourself known to us, or that you would choose in Christ to invite us to yourself. Lord, that's a privilege that is absolutely beyond our capacity to understand just how, how amazing it is. And so, Lord, we ask even now, as you invite us to come, that you would enable us to do so, that you would draw us to yourself, that you'd enable us even now in a more deep way to find the rest that is found in knowing you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You have made us to praise you, O Lord, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. It's a, phrase, a sentence, actually, I was reading this week. Someone said it's one of the most important sentences in history. It was written by Augustine, you might know, in his Confessions. And, and when he wrote this, this famous idea that our hearts are restless until they rest in you, this was not just some at-a-desk philosophical insight that occurred to him. This was the fruit of years of struggle. Perhaps you know the story. Augustine was a man who grew up in North Africa. Um, his mom was a devout Christian who regularly was praying for him to, to know Christ. Meanwhile, his father was not. His father was ambitious for him. And Augustine seems to be someone who is more shaped by his father's ambition than his mother's Christianity. At about 17, he went off to Carthage, where he had this kind of elite level of education in rhetoric and, you know, public speaking. And he, he showed himself very early on to be an absolute genius. He was successful in almost every way. Meanwhile, he developed a relationship with a girlfriend that he would have for the next 10 years, although he would never marry her. He experienced all the, the greatnesses of being in a city. He went to the theater regularly. And yet, in hindsight, he looks back and says, I was miserable. I was, I was restless. He said, there was a, a lack of satisfaction in any of these things, no matter how successful he was, no matter how great the relationship might have been, no matter how many of the distractions, he was restless. And at a certain point in his studies, he says, there's this one writer, Cicero, that, that came to kind of help him to see a little bit more what he was talking about or what he was feeling by saying, none of those are going to satisfy you. What you need is a wisdom to navigate it. And so he, he began in all of this to start seeking wisdom. He, he dabbled again in the scriptures, knowing how much his mom cared about them, but found them, found Christianity just intellectually unsatisfying. And so he plunged into Manichaeism, which was kind of a pagan religion of the day that was especially appealing to the intellectuals because it was one of those things that you only will understand it if you're brilliant. And so since Augustine was brilliant, he felt like he was part of the inner group. He continued to kind of ascend up the... The success ladder moving first to Rome as a teacher of rhetoric, and then he got this prestigious position in Milan, professor of rhetoric. It's the very top of his field. He had made it, and yet he says even more then than almost any before, he was feeling disillusioned. He had recognized that Manichaeism was just empty at its core, and he was unhappy. He, he speaks of one time when he was walking on the way to this really important lecture that he was about to give, where he knew he would have crowds cheering him, showing just how great he was, and seeing on the side of the road a drunk. And, and that drunk seemed happy, and he wished he were that guy. 
because he was feeling stressed. He was feeling exhausted. I mean, he didn't really want to be that guy. He didn't want to be drunk, but he didn't want to be himself either. He was, he was longing for something. And it was around this time that he encountered a man by the name of Ambrose, who was at that time this famous preacher. And because, of course, Augustine is a person who's all about public speaking, he wanted to go see what all the buzz was about. And so he heard Ambrose preach. And as he did, he came to his surprise to hear a credibility in terms of the way that the scriptures were being explained, where he suddenly realized there's some intellectual coherence that he hadn't seen before. But even more important, as he came to start watching Ambrose and getting to know him, he found in Ambrose a kind of joy and and steadiness that even as he encountered difficulties didn't go away. And he longed to have what he saw in him. So finally, there's kind of like a breaking point. There was a day where he just kind of had almost this emotional breakdown. He had had, he had a conversation with this, this person he just met, and this person he just met spoke about how he had become a Christian, this other person. And, and the, the joy that he experienced in coming to know Christ, and Augustine just he just kind of like fell apart. He, he felt this deep sense of longing to have what this guy had, and yet this deep sense of uncertainty and inadequacy and stuckness, and he didn't know what to do. And he says in his confessions that at that moment he heard what sounded like a child's voice, although in hindsight he's pretty convinced it's not a kid. He thinks it was an angel. A child's voice saying, take and read, take and read. And so he opens up the Bible, and he comes to Romans 14 that says, clothe yourself with Christ Jesus. And he says, in that moment, suddenly light filled his heart, his doubt subsided, and he came to know God. And it's out of that story of being found that Augustine writes those words, you move us to praise us, O Lord, to praise you, O Lord, for you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. He writes that because he doesn't believe, while on one hand, his own experience was unique to himself, he doesn't think that was only about himself, but that there is a deeper underlying truth that is part of the human condition that none of us will find rest until we know what it is to worship the one true God. Because that, he says, is how we were made at our very core. And even today, I think if Augustine were here, he would pose this question to you. Do you feel restless? You know, one of the interesting things about this year is that COVID, for all of its bad things, one of the things it's doing is it's removing the distractions to some degree. We generally try to escape our dissatisfaction by by having lots of things attracting our attention, by being so busy that the, the distract, that this unsatisfaction can't catch up with us. And COVID has kind of like pulled some of that back and it's forcing us to ask questions. Questions like, we have all of this information and all of this science, but are we any wiser than we've ever been? We have all of this wealth, all of this stuff, but are we any happier? We have had centuries upon centuries of progress, but are we satisfied? And Augustine would say, of course not, because none of those things are what you need. You were made to know God and worship Him, and until you come to that, you will always be restless. 
And it is the rest that Augustine speaks about in his confessions that Jesus is speaking about in the passage that we have just read. If you don't have it open before, you invite you to do so in your bulletins or your Bibles because we'll be kind of referring to that regularly. And, and you might have noticed as it was being read that there seems to be just kind of, you know, three different paragraphs. And, and in some ways it maybe feels like it's a couple of ideas. At first Jesus talks about what it is to know God and then at a certain point he makes an invitation. But what I want us to actually understand is that it's all talking about the same thing. It's all talking about rest. So in verse 27... When Jesus says, only the Father knows the Son, and only the Son knows the Father, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. What does He say right after? After He says, the only one who can help you know God is me. That's what that means, right? Then He says, so come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And the implication is clear. The rest that Jesus is offering in verse 28 is the rest that comes in knowing God. What we have here in these verses is an invitation by our gentle Savior to experience that rest in God that Augustine speaks of. And so this morning what I want us to do is just to notice two truths that he makes absolutely clear in these verses as he's inviting us to experience that. And that is that this Knowledge of God in which rest is found is a gift. And this knowledge of God in which rest is found comes in a way. So this knowledge of God in which rest is found is a gift. Again, just quoting the same verse that we just read. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. It's a gift. It's not something that we can just acquire or achieve on our own. I emphasize that because not only do I think that's strongly in this passage, but I think that's actually a strong impulse that in general human beings have. We have this sense that God is something or someone that we can discover like a lost continent in the ocean that if we just work hard enough, if we just think hard enough, if we just process long enough, we can figure this out. We can figure God out. And if, if for some reason after us really working to think and to understand God still doesn't make sense to us, well, then he, he probably doesn't exist at all. We assume that God is, is some object that we can master if we just work hard enough to understand. But why in the world do we think of God in that way? It should be absolutely clear to us with just a moment's thinking that knowing God is going to be unlike any other kind of knowledge that we have access to. I mean, think about it. How, how in science do we come to know biology or, or physics? We come to know how, how bodies work by dissecting them. We come to understand physics by, in a laboratory, testing things multiple times and noticing patterns. Or in medicine, we have a control group where one's a placebo and one's not. We're trying to, to kind of stand over and understand by mastering it. None of that works when it comes to the God who stands outside of the universe and reigns over all. You can't put God in a laboratory and under a microscope. You, you can't have 
a control group where there's a world without God and another one where there's a world with God so you can see the difference they would be. You can't have this category of let's look at six different versions of God and see which one works in which way. All of that implies that he is like us, but he is not. He is so far above us. He is the Lord of heaven and earth who cannot be known through our natural abilities. How do you know a God like that? You can't know him just through your own tools of understanding. And, and Jesus himself makes that transparent in verse 27 when he says, as we've already noted, only the Father knows the Son, and only the Son knows the Father. In other words, he's saying the only one who truly has natural access to knowing God is God. In all eternity, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the fellowship of the Spirit, they delight in this knowledge of each other because they're God. They understand what it is to be God because they are God, but, but no one else can know God in that way. In fact, anyone who pretends to feel like they've figured God out, anyone who imagines that through this careful process of, of deductive reasoning, they've been able to figure out exactly who God must be and how he must act. I don't know what they know, but I know it's not God. Because the person who is God cannot be contained by our understanding. I mean, notice what Jesus praises God for at the very beginning of our passage when he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. These things in the context, you might remember from last week that Jesus was talking about how as he went from one town to another and he performed these miracles, people did not recognize, they did not repent. And now Jesus says, you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. And the wise and the learned are, are not necessarily only the brilliant, but they are the people who think they're brilliant. Or they are the people who think that if they just think hard enough and work long enough, they can figure God out. And Jesus says, as long as people have that attitude, that confidence that they can know God, God will always remain hidden. Because the only way a person can know God is to know him as master. They can never attain mastery of him. And so as long as there is this confidence that with our just knowledge we can figure God out, we will never know God rightly. He cannot be achieved. He cannot be acquired. But, and here is where the point is trying to head, while we can never attain that knowledge on our own, this knowledge of God is something that God delights to give. So if we finish that very sentence where he praises for being hidden and also says, you know, I praise you for that you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. The, the, the little children, the infants that he is talking about here, it's, it's, it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. He's talking about his disciples. The disciples have actually been able to recognize and, and, and repent and these disciples are not impressive, you know, they're tax collectors, they're fishermen, they're, they're weak and inadequate and helpless, and it's those that Jesus says God has given them, given them the understanding of him. And notice that Jesus says not just what God has done, but what God feels about this. He says, for this was your pleasure, you delighted 
you are happy to show these things to these people. And that same theme of how God delights in giving this knowledge is repeated when Jesus, so when he says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the, sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The the word literally is those to whom the, the Son desires to or wants to reveal God. And who does Jesus want to show God to? The very next verse, come to me, all of you. I want all of you to know the Father. That's why I've came. Come so that I can give this rest to all of you. The point that we're supposed to understand from this is we have a God who on one hand, we can never just figure him out on our own, but we have a God who wants to, wants to enable us to know him and experience him. Which if we just stop for a moment and think about that we're talking about the creator of the universe who wants to be known, that's extraordinary. I mean, one of the ways in any human relationship that we know that that relationship is important, whether we're talking about a friendship or a dating relationship or family member, is when that person opens up and allows us to know the very hidden aspects of who they are, the deepest parts of their personality. They, they welcome us in the very heart of their lives. And what we see here is that is how God is towards you. I want you to know me. I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to experience my love and delight in the glory of who I am and find rest God wants to give you this knowledge of Him in which we find rest. This knowledge is a gift. And that brings us now to the second point, and that is this this knowledge in which we find rest comes through a way. A way of life. Specifically, as we'll see in the next verses, it comes through an apprenticeship. So in verse 28, after Jesus has said that there is only one way to experience this rest, and it's through me, it's through me giving it to you, then he gives us the instruction about how to receive it. It's an invitation, and, and the invitation is an invitation that is about him. He, he says, come, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. And by that, he's talking about all of us. All of us are the weary. All of us are the burdened, whether we acknowledge it or not. We were never meant to live in a world that is disconnected from God. And we feel that. We feel the exhaustion, the burden of trying to to work well, to love well, to live well in a world that is broken and, if we are honest, with our own selves not being right and And we try to distract ourselves, we try to escape ourselves from the awareness of this weariness, but at certain times it catches up to us and we just feel the impossibility. The demands are too many, the sadness is too great, and our abilities are way too small. And Jesus speaks to us saying, come to me, I see you, I see 
your weariness. And if you are honest enough with yourself to recognize that, then I want you to know, I want you to come to me. He's calling us to a choice. Turn from the way that is making you so exhausted and, and turn towards me and come to me. This is what we were talking about last week, if you remember, when we spoke of repentance. Repentance being a, a, dis, a change in life direction. Turn away from this thing that is exhausting you and turn to me so that I will find you rest. I will give you rest. And, and notice how this rest is given to us. It's given not in this one-time decision, but in a lifestyle that Jesus has for us. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, that, that language of yoke, um, probably most of us don't have much of experience with a yoke. And those of us who do might think of it in terms of like an ox or two oxen usually that had like some sort of wooden frame by which they would pull a plow together. But honestly, actually, in that time, that was not the primary yoke that people would be thinking of. And that's probably not the image that Jesus is using here. Yoke oftentimes was just like a single pole. Like you can imagine, if you can imagine this as a stick... And just what people would do is they would either put it over one shoulder or over both shoulders and you'd have a weight on one side and a weight on the other side. And that was the yoke and enabled them to carry burdens more easily. And it became such a common thing that it was used oftentimes as a figure of speech, oftentimes referring to coming under someone else's rule. So, you know, if you were part of a small nation under a larger nation, you would be under the yoke of that ruler. Israelites would speak about being under the yoke of the law. When Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, allow me to be your master. And specifically, he's asking that in the context of discipleship. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's apprenticeship language. In that day, if you wanted to be an apprentice, pretty much the number one rule is you did whatever your mentor told you to do. If you wanted to become a carpenter and you're apprenticing yourself to a carpenter, if you wanted to be a silversmith, they had the right to say anything and you had to do it, no matter how menial the job, because the idea was only through doing stuff will you ever learn how to be a carpenter or a silversmith. Of course, the problem is, if that's the way things work, what happens if you have a bad mentor, someone who just delights in making you do lots of work and exhausting you? Or someone who is just demeaning and cruel and, and regularly bringing you down? It could be a miserable thing to apprentice yourself to someone who was cruel. And perhaps some of us can think of, even in our own lives, uh, bosses that we've worked under that are like that, or or relationships that are demeaning and demanding, or even, if we're honest, sometimes we think about the way we relate to ourselves and how demanding and how cruel we can even be in, in the way we relate to ourselves. And yet Jesus says, that is not the kind of apprenticeship you will have with me. My yoke is easy. And, and the word easy here has this idea of pleasance. It's, it's fitting my burden is light. In other words, I am not going to give you work that will destroy you. I'm going to give you work that is good. Your apprenticeship with me will be different because I am different. Here is one of my favorite parts of this whole passage where he says who he is. For I am gentle 
and I am humble in heart. Jesus is gentle with us. If we were to skip to just chapter 12, we actually heard the same passage at the beginning of our service of how our Lord Jesus is He will not break a reed that's bending. He will not blow out a candle wick that's barely lit. He he understands your weakness. And and when we fail, He doesn't destroy us with harsh criticism. He, He builds us up. He encourages. He strengthens. He comes alongside us. He's gentle. And He's humble in heart. He, he could choose to treat us as way below him because we are. And yet he chooses to be one of us, one with us. He calls us friends. When we rejoice, he delights with us. When we grieve, he grieves with us. That is the master That is the kind of mentor that he is. In fact, he doesn't just say it, he shows this. If we think about what we see in the cross, what do we see? Someone who is so willing to be one of us that he is named as us in our place. That he, so that he can protect us from experiencing our own consequences and the harsh experience of our own consequences, he steps in and experiences it for us. Because he's gentle. Because he's humble of heart. And so when he invites and says, come, he says, you don't need to be afraid. As as you take this yoke upon you, you don't need to worry that you will lose yourself. Through me, you will find yourself. You don't need to worry about being destroyed. You will be remade. I am gentle and humble of heart. And most importantly, if you come to me, you will find rest for your souls. This is how we experience this rest that Augustine spoke of. This is how we experience this rest of coming to know God. It's it's not about getting a lot of information about God. It's not even actually about having some sort of mystical experience where we suddenly feel like we know God in a new way. Those things can happen. I'm not trying to demean those, but that's not what Jesus is actually talking about. Jesus is saying the way that we come to experience this rest is in the daily ups and downs of following him. As we every day depend on Jesus more, as we every day seek to obey him more, as we every day find his faithfulness through that day in, day out experience, we come to know God. And in this, we find rest. As I think about my life, um, I think I can say rightly that I, I know God more clearly now, more deeply now than I did, say, 30 years ago when I was 16. And it's not because I know a whole bunch of more stuff. It's because in my very imperfect apprenticeship to Jesus, as I am seeking to obey him, I have found more and more that the words that he gives are wise and good. As I kind of failingly sometimes lose hope or forget, I've come to recognize how faithful and how forgiving he is. 
And, and bit by bit, as I seek to live in my very inadequate way in this following of Jesus, I believe I've come to understand God's love more than I used to. Now, that's not in any way extraordinary. This is me just describing what it is to be a Christian. It is through this daily living into following Jesus that God gives us this knowledge of him. And it is through this living knowledge of God that we come to experience rest. That, that rest is not a rest where we are free from all activity. The very idea of a yoke tells us otherwise. But it is a rest of knowing that what we do is not in vain, but that God is doing something in and through it. And that strengthens us. This rest that Jesus promises, it's not a rest that frees us from hardship. Jesus is very clear that there are things that will be hard. But it is an inner strength, knowing and confidence that no matter how hard things are, we have a God who is with us, who is promising to keep working in everything for our good. This rest that we are given is not a freedom from sadness in this world. But there is a deeper joy than that sadness that we have in this rest, knowing that we are loved by our Creator and that in the end we will rejoice as we see Him face to face. We will not rest until we experience this kind of rest. And it's not a rest that we can acquire through just thinking long, through just figuring things out. It is only a rest that can be given to you. And what I want us to hear as we conclude is that Jesus stands inviting us. He says, come. Come to me. If you are weary and burdened, come to me. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. I am, I am gentle. I am humble in heart. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul.